Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who explains why she believes Donald Trump and the Republican Party's embrace of authoritarianism poses an ongoing threat to U.S. democracy. Joseph Givarhis, National Executive Director of Our Revolution, a progressive political action organization who talks about the success of his group's endorsed candidates and their effort to push the incoming Biden administration to the left. And Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative, who discusses the detrimental impact of coronavirus-related court closures on defendants who are forced to await their trials in jail. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Since 2017, the Trump regime has imposed sanctions on more than 8,600 officials and other individuals around the world, a far greater number than imposed by the previous Obama and George W. Bush administrations. Many of those sanctioned are linked to Iran and Shia-dominant Arab nations, including Syria and Iraq. The Economist magazine reports that Trump's campaign of maximum pressure effectively slashed Iran's oil exports and Tehran's currency fell by 85 percent. Yet Iran still funds its militias, including Hezbollah in Lebanon, and continues to support Syria's authoritarian leader, Bashar al-Assad. Trump's sanctions have had limited impact since they're mostly unilateral and not supported by European allies, who continue to support the international nuclear agreement with Iran that Trump withdrew from in 2018. In recent months, Iran's oil exports have risen to as high as one million barrels a day, and some countries, particularly China, have defied American threats and snapped up the discounted crude. Trump's hypocrisy is revealed in his refusal to impose legally mandated sanctions on Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and other U.S. allies with ghastly human rights records. In the face of chronic power outages and an energy shortage, Ghana climate activist Shibeze Ezekiel defeated a plan to build the West African nation's first coal power plant and port to receive coal shipments that had been underwritten by a $1.5 billion loan from the China-Africa Development Fund. Ezekiel, a winner of the 2020 Goldman Prize for Grassroots Activism and head of Ghana's chapter of the 350.org Climate Activist Group, led a preemptive campaign among village elders and community leaders to undermine support for the coal plant. When the government formally presented their plan to build a 700-megawatt coal plant to the village elders, there was little support among community leaders who had already been alerted about the destructive health and environmental hazards that would be produced by the coal plant. Instead, community leaders, encouraged by Ezekiel and his youth organization, Strategic Youth Network for Development, supported a move to sustainable and renewable energy. In 2016, Ghana's government withdrew their plan to build the coal plant and a year later, with Chinese backing, pledged that all new power plants in the country would use clean renewable energy. 
The campaign in Ghana is another example of the power of grassroots organizing to block dirty coal power plants that provide 38% of all electricity across the globe while generating greenhouse gases that are a leading contributor to climate change. For the two months before she died of the coronavirus, California registered nurse Sandra Oldfield worked with her fellow nurses to sound the alarm about the dangerous conditions at the Kaiser Permanente Fresno Medical Center, where she had worked for 20 years. Soon after a patient became acutely ill with a respiratory infection and tested positive for COVID-19, Oldfield joined co-workers who complained to management, demanding access to N95 respirator masks and personal protective equipment. When management was unresponsive to their demands, nurses and healthcare workers staged protests at the Fresno Hospital in April and May to demand basic protective equipment. A third protest was held after Oldfield died of COVID-19 in May. National Nurses United, the nation's largest union of registered nurses, estimates that over 1,700 nurses have died of COVID-19, far higher than official CDC reports. According to In These Times magazine, thousands of medical personnel have gone on strike during the pandemic, and healthcare workers are filing more National Labor Relations Board complaints alleging retaliation for workplace organizing than in previous years. In recent weeks, as another wave of COVID infections have spread across the U.S., 700 nursing home workers went on strike in Chicago, and nurses, doctors, and medical staff have organized other job actions in Albany and New Rochelle, New York, and in Washington State. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. More than one month after President Trump lost the November 3rd presidential election to former Vice President Joe Biden, he refuses to concede defeat and persists in attempts to overturn the will of the voters. Rudy Giuliani, along with Trump-allied attorneys, have lost 42 lawsuits that attempted with no evidence to disqualify hundreds of thousands of ballots cast mostly by black voters in battleground states. Mr. Trump has also unsuccessfully attempted to pressure governors and state legislators to overturn state election results to give himself an illicit Electoral College victory. Trump's attempt to unconstitutionally reverse the outcome of a Democratic election has permeated the Republican Party as a whole. A Washington Post survey found that only 27 of 249 Republican congressional office holders have accepted Joe Biden's victory. And according to a Reuters-Ipsos opinion poll, more than half of Republican voters claim Donald Trump won the presidential election, but believe it was taken from him due to Democratic Party voter fraud. Death threats made against anyone viewed as a Trump opponent have become common across the U.S. Although December 8th was the safe harbor deadline for states to certify their Electoral College winner, compelling Congress to accept those results... Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Trump loyalist, is suing four battleground states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, 
asking the U.S. Supreme Court to block those states from voting in the Electoral College. Your reporter spoke with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of Italian and history at New York University and author of the book titled Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Here she explains why she believes Donald Trump and the Republican Party's embrace of authoritarianism poses an ongoing threat to U.S. democracy. We have a a crisis. Uh, We're in a kind of state of exception. That's how I see it. The minute that the election was called, even by Fox News, for Biden, and not just Trump, but the GOP didn't accept it, even when world leaders not known for being liberals like Erdogan in Turkey, they called Biden ages ago to, to congratulate him, but our own GOP won't uh, acknowledge that Trump has lost. This is a very, this is an exceptional state of affairs. So I would caution anyone not to take this seriously because he he's trying uh, the lesson of these people who I study is that they will, they are very tenacious about their efforts to stay in power. How would you describe what we've seen unfold in the weeks since the November 3rd election, where Trump and his Republican allies and the lawyers, including Rudolph Giuliani, have attempted to overturn election results by invalidating hundreds of thousands of ballots cast mostly by black voters in some big cities in the key battleground states? Would you characterize this as a coup? You know, at the broadest level, what he's doing does qualify as what would be called a self-coup. And, and I, a third of my book is about uh, coups, like the age of military coups of Gaddafi and Pinochet in Chile. So I spent a lot of time learning about coups. And so this is when somebody who is already in power tries to stay there. And certainly uh, he's trying every which way. Some of, the, some of the things he's doing build on you know, voter suppression, which is a historic GOP practice. And, you know, then he's been trying to relitigate the election, which is typical of what he does. He's always done this. This is his way of business. Far before he became president, he, you know, he would hire accountants and lawyers to try and relitigate and find loopholes and turn back tax results and things he didn't like. So that's not working too well for him. He's, he's got a very bad record uh, over 38. I think at this point, you know, judges have uh, refused his game. But also very scary is that he did explore a military option. This was shut down by General Millet, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who, you know, out of the blue, and obviously he did this because he was worried, he made a declaration saying in the last week saying, you know, the armed forces will obey the Constitution and not an individual. So that kind of using the regular armed forces was shut down. But the fact that Millet had to do this because obviously there were attempts being made is very frightening. So this is a man who's trying everything. He's trying legal means, he's trying military means, and now he's getting more desperate and uh, intervening uh, in Pennsylvania, trying to get them to replace you know, their electors. And he's not giving up anytime soon. The Republican Party throughout Donald Trump's tenure in office has pretty much fully embraced Donald Trump's agenda, have remained silent about his corruption and opposition to constitutional norms. And in this latest episode where Donald Trump has challenged the election results and tried to overturn the people's will, by and large, the Republicans have gone along. There was a recent Washington Post survey that said only 27 Republican elected officials in Washington 
out of 249 have acknowledged that Joe Biden won the November 3rd election. That's quite shocking here a month down the road. Yeah, and we can never forget uh, or or minimize or uh, as much as we might like to, because it's actually so upsetting that we are in this very bizarre situation. And one of the reasons I wrote this book, Strongmen, um, was I, I'm not an American historian. I've always done European, like studied fascism and global history of empire. And so when I look at the relationship of Trump and the Republican Party, it matches exactly the kind of leader-follower relationship and total re- loyalty requirements uh, of of these other situations in Hungary or in Russia and all the places that have a liberal government. But what's really extraordinary is that sometimes um, in history, the rulers were the ones who founded their parties. So, of course, they're going to have total control. Like Mussolini or Silvio Berlusconi is an excellent example because he never destroyed democracy, but he really bent it to serve his personal situation, including corruption charges. But he, he founded Forza Italia. But Trump, he came from outside and in a space, a shockingly swift space of time, considering how old and grand the Republican Party is, he's just wrapped it around his finger and, you know, to the point where when he was he was acquitted from impeachment by the Senate, uh, Cheryl Brown, the Democratic senator, went around and asked his colleagues, uh, his Republican colleagues, why they acquitted Trump. And they all said they were afraid. They told him off the record that they felt they were worried about intimidation or being ruined by Trump. So when we get to this kind of situation, this isn't a Democratic with a small d situation. This is an authoritarian situation. That was Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of Italian and history at New York University and author of the book titled Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Find links to Professor Ben-Ghiat's writings and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As Donald Trump and most Republicans continue their dishonest and dangerous campaign to overturn the outcome of the November 3rd presidential election, progressive Democrats and activist groups are assessing President-elect Joe Biden's staff and cabinet appointments to his incoming administration. One early frontrunner for the important job of Health and Human Services Secretary that will play a critical role in managing the coronavirus pandemic was Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo. However, after progressive activists criticized Governor Raimondo's handling of the pandemic in her state and caving in to lobbyists to issue an executive order giving legal liability protections to nursing homes, she dropped out. Biden instead appointed California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, whose activism fighting the Trump agenda earned him praise from leading progressives. Other Biden appointments greeted with criticism included retired Army General Lloyd Austin III, nominated to be Defense Secretary, who served on the board of directors of the powerful weapons manufacturer Raytheon. Your reporter spoke with Joseph Givarhis, National Executive Director of Our Revolution, a progressive political action organization born from Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. Here he talks about his group's successful candidate endorsements in the 2020 election and moving the incoming Biden administration toward adopting progressive policies. When we 
2020 was a landmark year for progressives. Let me just add a caveat. At the federal level, a lot of Democrats, centrists especially, were forecasting a blue wave. But that failed to materialize. And as a result, you saw a lot of centrists casting blame on progressives for having slogans like defund the police or Medicare for all and centrist blaming progressives for losing ground at the federal level. But here's the real thing. If you peel away that critique and if you look down ballot, our candidates did really well. We endorsed 450 candidates, everything from uh, drainage commissioners to school board members to mayors, state reps, and 74% of our candidates won. It's our highest win rate ever. The other part of that uh, I think is worth noting, um, not only are progressives ascendant in down-ballot races, but our issues are doing really well. Um, so, for example, Florida just passed a $15 minimum wage ballot measure. And Florida, as we all know, went for Donald Trump, you know, and Trump won by 51% of the vote. The $15 minimum wage ballot measure got 61% of the vote. Paid leave passed in Colorado. Biden took Colorado, but paid leave, a ballot measure there in Colorado, got more votes than Joe Biden. So taken together, I would say the results from 2020 are very heartening for progressives, despite what you know happened at the federal level. And I think there's a clear message to centrists that their message isn't resonating with the people. You know, I did want to have you uh, provide a little bit of assessment here on President-elect Joe Biden's staff and cabinet appointments uh, that have been announced thus far. And uh, just one that I'd, I'd like to focus on it initially, and that was there was talk of selecting uh, Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo as the new Health and Human Services Secretary, but it was just announced that uh, Biden instead will be choosing California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, who's, who's a real active progressive guy. And uh, it was interesting that there was a lot of uh, progressive criticism of the uh, selection of Rhode Island Governor uh, Raimondo. Uh, who has a lot of baggage, let's put it that way. But I, I don't know if you wanted to comment there, because there's certainly a battle going on for uh, the officials that will populate this new administration. No, I think there is. The Democratic Party is funded in a lot of ways by corporate donation. And you're seeing a revolving door. I mean, that's kind of the pattern um, when we look at Biden and his appointments. Uh, you're seeing people who uh, worked for concerns like BlackRock or served on the boards of large uh, military uh, contractors. Um, you're seeing them go into government. I think Democrats definitely want to be on the side of draining the swamp and not aligning ourselves with corporate interests that want to privatize and plunder our government. So it is what we're seeing is really concerning. And what we're doing at our revolution is really trying to push back and make sure that we have real progressives in positions of power. And, you know, look, it is uh, it's a real fight uh, because the other side 
usually has uh, is well resourced and well connected. Um, and you can kind of tell that, I think, by all the appointments, whether it's Nero Tandon, OMB, or some of the other folks that he's named. What I think that means for progressives is that we're going to have to fight to continue making progress on the things that are important to us, um, as well as holding Biden accountable to all the things that he said he would do. You know, whether it's lowering the age for uh, Medicare to 60 or allowing the government to negotiate pharma drug prices. You know, I think there's a lot of things that Biden said that he would do that we should hold him accountable for. And I think that itself would be a little bit of fight given some of these appointees in this moment. But we know what we're up against, which is, you know, corporate America. That was Joseph Givarhis, National Executive Director of Our Revolution. For more analysis and commentary on President-elect Joe Biden's staff and cabinet appointments, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. the number of criminal trials are way down in New York City, a result of the coronavirus pandemic and the closure of courthouses. According to a recent article in the New York Times, since March there have been only nine trials in New York City, whereas during the previous year there was a total of 800. The situation in New York is representative of similar court closures across the country. It's not just that trials are delayed, which could amount to a violation of a defendant's constitutional right to a speedy trial, but that the vast majority of the half-million people sitting in jail awaiting trial are there because they can't afford bail. That situation exposes defendants to dangerous health risks, while also wreaking havoc on their jobs, their family life, and custody of their children. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Wanda Bertram, a spokeswoman for the Prison Policy Initiative, which conducts research on criminal justice matters. Here she discusses the detrimental impact of court closures and suggests a better solution for defendants awaiting trial in jail. We've done a lot of research in the past on uh, the way that our criminal justice system locks up people who haven't even been convicted yet. Of the you know three-quarters of a million people who are in local jails on any given night, most of them are there being held pre-trial. Now, we've seen something happen during COVID-19 that we never thought would happen or we didn't think would happen so soon, which was jails reducing their pretrial populations so much that they could bring down the population of the jail by 25 percent, 30 percent. Unfortunately, as we've continued to track jail populations over the last several months, what we've seen is that populations are actually going back up, which is a, a serious health issue because jails are not places where you can spread out. Right. And that's why jails and prisons have become super spreaders of the coronavirus. And because courts have closed, more people are stuck in jail longer. Yeah, that's right. In many places that I've looked at recently, just monitoring the news, as we do, to kind of see reports of, of where populations are going up and going down. You know, I've noticed in Miami, in New York, in Southern California, in a lot of places that, that I've seen news reports across the country, we're hearing that the lack of jury trials and this backlog of cases is causing, you know, people in jail, jail populations to go up and up and up. 
And you might get sheriffs and district attorneys saying, oh, it's just people who are being held for the most serious crimes. We couldn't possibly let them go. But these are the same entities that for years have been telling us that pretrial reform, reducing pretrial populations can't be done because it's not safe when we know from the data that it actually can be done safely. And most of the people held pretrial, that's because they can't make bail, right? That's right. That's right. We still have a system in this country where how much money you have determines whether you're able to go free before your trial. And we really thought that the pandemic was going to provide an opportunity for states and counties to rethink how they use bail. And in some places, that's been true. In California, they set $0 bail for almost all misdemeanors. Uh, And I think a lot of counties have stuck with that. So it's been an opportunity for bail reform, but it's not happening everywhere. Wanda Bertram, an article in the New York Times from December 2nd, noted that New York City has conducted just nine criminal jury trials since the pandemic hit in March, so nine trials in nine months. For comparison, last year there were about 800 criminal trials in the city. Are you aware of court closures elsewhere? I've been hearing of of jury trials slowing down in all sorts of places. I, I can't even I can't even count them for you. It's all across the country that this is happening. And it's because people don't consider it safe to bring people together in a courtroom the way that you would normally have to do to have a trial. And they often don't want to do it over video, which I can I can see the reasons why. You might not be able to make a fair judgment over video in the same way that you can in person. So some some courts are declining to do it that way. What I think is is hypocritical about this is to acknowledge that a courtroom is a public safety threat, but not to acknowledge that a jail is a public safety threat, even though the largest clusters of COVID-19 have been in jails for the last several months consistently. It's astounding to me that people are not making this connection. What do you think is a better way to deal with this problem of holding people in jail because courts are closed? This is an opportunity for us as a country to evaluate what it means that we keep about half a million people locked up on any given day for crimes that they have not necessarily committed, right? People who are legally still innocent. That, I think, should cause people alarm. Thinking about people who, you know, I know right now that a lot of people are worrying about the number of people who are getting COVID and dying in jails who are charged but not convicted yet. But it's not enough to be outraged, right? We have to take actual action here. And we have to be comfortable with releasing people who have been charged with crimes, sometimes serious crimes, because it's the right thing to do, rather than keeping people in jail just because we're scared of what might happen if we let them out. We need to look at the data, and the data says that pretrial reform is very safe. And we need to invest public money, not in jails, but in helping people actually stay out of jail and stay safe themselves while they're waiting for their trial, right? When we think about the number of people held pretrial who were homeless when they were arrested, um, or who were living in really dangerous situations or, or insecure situations, you realize that we could be putting public money to much better use by just letting people out of jail pre-trial, letting legally innocent people go, which is the right thing to do, and then supporting them through social services while they're out. That was Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Northampton, Massachusetts-based Prison Policy Initiative. Learn more about the initiative and the impact the coronavirus pandemic has had on the U.S. judicial system by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBSU in Brockton, New York, WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.